Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. We are very pleased to be joined by Jim Fox. He's a guitarist, composer, a recording artist, a touring musician. He's recorded and or performed with a long list of artists. Some of them would include Frank Sinatra Jr., Dean Martin, Steve Lawrence, Gordon Lightfoot, Rosemary Clooney, Bette Midler, Barry Manilow, and many more. He's released two albums on his own. They're entitled Sunburst and Natural Blonde. It is a great pleasure to have Jim Fox with us. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. I'm curious to know, has it always been the guitar for you? Has that always been something that you've been fixed on? I've been fixed on the guitar since I was about three and a half years old. And I'm 63. Okay. (laughs) So it's almost 60 years. Decades and decades of love for the guitar. Yes. Yeah, I think I, I could play a little bit about as well as I could walk probably then. You know, I didn't get, I didn't get serious until my teenage years, but I played a lot for fun, took lessons, and uh, my mother played some guitar. And so I think I was encouraged by her to uh, play. I certainly was inspired by her playing to want to play. And it's just always felt natural to me. Tell us a little bit about your parents and about the name Fox. I think Fox, the name Fox was originally the Eastern European word for fox. And I'm not, I'm not too sure on it. It's like Lis or, you know, Lishk or something like that. My mother was from uh, Minneapolis and my father was originally from St. Louis and uh, moved to California. In the, he was born in 1906, moved to California in 1917. He uh, became an attorney. He was in the Navy in World War II. My parents were wonderful people and very supportive of me all the way. Really my best friends in life, and I, I lost them quite a while ago now, but uh, they're in my heart every day. and. Um, I, I'm really lucky that I have parents that I, I really love and admire. And uh, I think that has you know, helped me uh, be who I am today and uh, be able to pursue music. They encouraged me. They paid for me to go to music school. And um, how's that? That's a good start. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I'm curious. You know, you mentioned that your mother was playing the guitar. Was there a lot of recorded music being played? Was it a house full of music? It was a house full of music. My mother loved standard songs, the kind of stuff that I, I, I play a lot of these days. And she loved guitar. And she, she, had, uh, she had some guitar records um, with uh, George Van Epps and Howard Roberts and Barney Kessel uh, and, and, and some others, too. Lorendo Almeida. And um, my father was uh, much more into uh, classical music. And so um, as a child, you know, we went to hear the symphony and the opera 
and a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan. And my mother played a lot of, uh, of uh, vocalists, you know, uh, Ella Fitzgerald and guitar players and stuff. So we had a, a pretty broad range. And there was folk music, too. My mother enjoyed playing folk music on the guitar. And we had, I had a pretty good upbringing of blues and folk and finger picking. And my original early pursuits on the guitar followed people like Brownie McGee and Lightning Hopkins and uh, Reverend Gary Davis and Doc Watson. And I just anything that was guitar, folk and blues. And then as I was getting becoming a teenager, rock. At that time, we had a lot of Eric Clapton and Jimi Hendrix and Mike Bloomfield. If it had to do with the guitar, I, I just loved it. And then there's classical, too. We had Segovia Records and uh, other guys, too. <laughs> a lot of variety of stuff. And when I was listing all of the artists that you performed with, a lot of those people are kind of associated with standards. Even people like Barry Manilow, who, yeah, they've done all kinds of things, but he also does a really good job, I think, when he's doing the... American Songbook kind of material. Would it be possible for you to pick a specific genre that you especially like to perform? Sure. I would just preface it by saying that in the recording studio and in playing live shows, I've played virtually every style, even heavy metal. And so I, and I do enjoy the versatility. But as I've grown older and I've gotten to know myself better, I would say that standards and uh, swing music, Brazilian music, blues are kind of at the top of my list. And I think that some people that I record for, recording contractors, composers, arrangers, artists, they've come to know that. And so I, I get called for that kind of stuff. I love playing rhythm. I'm a tremendous fan of the late Freddie Green, who played with the Count Basie Orchestra for over half a century. And uh, my recently departed dear friend, Bob Bain, great guitarist, great rhythm player. I've looked up to him for many years. And so these standard songs and jazz are Probably my, my favorites to play on my own, yes. When you think about the different people that you have gone into the recording studio with, I only listed some of those people, but I would like to know, is there a particular recording that you go back to in your mind again and again that you're especially proud of? It's something that came out really good. That's that's a tough one because uh, so many of the things that I would do as a guitarist, you sometimes you barely hear me, like you know playing rhythm. I I can say some of the things I enjoyed doing. I I, I can't really say what are favorites. I don't have any favorites. I, I know it's really weird, but when it comes to myself, I'm 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 critical, very critical. But I wouldn't say critical to a fault because I accept my shortcomings, but I'm still critical. But um, 
I enjoyed very much playing uh, under Patrick Williams, great arranger. And we did uh, a lot of stuff. The, the Steve Lawrence Sinatra recording, Frank Sinatra Jr.'s record, which was uh, called That Face, playing for uh, Frank Sinatra Jr. for 20 years was really a joy. And uh, he was a, a, a wonderful, wonderful guy and a great person to work for and a really fine musician. And um, so doing that record with him was joy. I really enjoyed doing my own two records, but I, I, I can't, uh, I, I don't listen to them because I, I don't, uh, when I'm done with something, I listen to it for mistakes and if anything needs to be corrected, and then I'm kind of done with it, and, I'm, and I move on. I don't, I don't know, I, I, uh, I'm not taken, I'm not taken with myself. Hmm. But I love to play, and I love to get better, and I try to do the best that I can. I wanted to go into Frank Sinatra Jr., if we could. As you mentioned, he was a, a sensational artist. What would you say that he was like to someone who had never met him? First of all, I think when people meet him, they realize that he, he was a very intelligent man and very perceptive. I would say that in a sense, he was kind of standoffish because a lot of people wanted to get close to him just because of his name and, and his history and who, and who he was. And so uh, to get close to Frank, wasn't that easy, but he was kind to just about everybody that he met. He was a very gentle spirit, and um, he really loved his his staff musicians. I mean, we were we were like family to him, and he he cared about all of us. It was really a remarkable relationship we all had with Frank, and uh, his loss has uh, affected all of us. It's been. Uh, well over two years now, and uh, I think we all feel it every day. When we, when we speak from time to time, we all talk about it. What kind of people did you find were his fans? Were his fans? Yeah, what was the typical fan like? I heard actually about some, some really well-known people who were fans of his, but then I would just like to know like the, the kinds of people that would go see one of the concerts. Did you notice any kind of commonality with them? There were um, a different kinds of people. I would say we used to kid around that and say that the uh, the average age of our crowd was deceased. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, first of all, there were real Sinatra fans that wanted to hear Sinatra music, which he did give them, especially in the in the last years. Then there were a group of people that really followed Frank Jr. And they really loved him for him. And they liked the songs, not only that he sang of his father's, but they liked uh, his music too. And he had used many of the great arrangers uh, for his own orchestrations as well. And so they were beautifully conceived. And we did have some younger people too, not just people, not just people dragged in by their families, <laughs> like their parents, but 
we had a, a the young generation that that has embraced standards and Sinatra style music, and they would come out. So I think that's that's kind of three groups, isn't it? That's kind of like old Sinatra people, Frank Jr. people, and then kind of a younger generation of people. And there were people that just liked to hear the uh, the big band. We had um, people that loved the big bands and the orchestras, and they would come out too. Did you meet some interesting people throughout the years and years and years of touring with him? I'm sure you did. Oh, unquestionably. We met some really, really remarkable people. One of the fun ones was uh, that uh, Frank had done one episode, maybe two, but one for sure of the show Sopranos that was on HBO. And some of the cast members would come to uh, hear us when we would play in Atlantic City. And it would really create a buzz because, you know, they, they would take the house lights way down and they would, they would walk in the, the people from the Sopranos and put them at a table in the dark. But you could hear the buzz in the crowd because here we are in New Jersey, which is Sinatra country. And, and they're going to hear a big orchestra and they're going to hear Frank Jr. And then all of a sudden in comes the, the Sopranos. And it, it's, it, there was like a, uh, like a rat pack buzz that would happen in the audience. It was very exciting. And, and they were nice guys too. They would come backstage and, and uh, chat for a while. And then we'd all have dinner. It was uh, really fun. I wanted to kind of uh, turn the attention to these two albums we mentioned at the top, Sunburst and Natural Blonde, which am I correct in assuming that you're describing the look of the guitar? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. On the cover of, of uh, the CD of Sunburst is, is a guitar that has a sunburst finish on it. And then when I was going to do an, another one, I thought, well, I'll put a blonde guitar. But I had never heard, uh, this is just for the guitar geeks, I guess, mostly, but I'd never heard of the expression for a guitar, natural blonde. I'd heard blonde. And then I'd heard natural because like uh, some of the companies would use the designation N for a guitar that had just a natural finish. And then everybody would refer to them as blondes. But I thought if I use just the word blonde, I had played on a record a number of years ago called Blonde that was uh, written by Patrick Williams for for, um, a TV miniseries, but it was a jazz record and it had, uh, it had some legs. It was on Concord Jazz. So I thought, I'm not going to call it blonde. And then I thought, if I call it natural, I don't know. It just seems like somebody might think I'm talking about me, <laughs> like I'm a natural or something. So I thought, well, I'll do natural blonde. And then I explained it on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> so that was where those titles came from. What was the vision? What were you trying to accomplish with these albums? Well, I thought. You know, I wanted to do a CD, and I thought I could do, you know, a trio or a quartet CD. And then I thought, is that going to be uh, unique enough? I wasn't really even thinking of, on a commercial sense because they're not really commercial projects. They're 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 uh, uh, boutique vanity records. Guitar players like them. I sell them at gigs. I give them away. It's just something I wanted to do. So I was trying to think, what what can I do that sounds like me? 
if I, you know, I mean, I, there's so many great trio and quartet records. I mean, you look at Wes Montgomery and Joe Bass and Barney Kessel and Grant Green and, and on and on. And I thought, well, you know, I sort of have a way of uh, doing solo things in my own way. Um, I don't really emulate anybody else in the way I do it. I, it's kind of personal. So I thought, I'll do that. And I went to um, the great engineer, Al Schmidt, who's um, such a genius and a good friend over the years because his, his uh, residency is at Capitol Records and has been for so many years. And I asked him if he would record me. And he agreed. So I just went in. I practiced the material for a long time, and we just went in and recorded it live. And that was Sunburst. And then on Natural Blonde, I, I really wanted to record with some good friends. And Bob Bain, who I mentioned we lost this year, who is a legendary musician, I really wanted to record with Bob. And my dear friend, John Pisano, who is a great artist and a longtime mainstay of the scene in L.A., and um, I wanted to record with him. And a bassist who is a legendary, great bassist and great talent and dear friend, Chuck Berghofer. I, I've recorded with him a number of times, but never like like this. And so I and since we're all friends, I thought, let's just get them all together. So there are five solo pieces on that. And then the rest are all little bits and pieces of that ensemble. There are only one or two that have all of us on the same thing, I think. But it was just a real joy to get to get these great friends. They're they're all they were all a little older than me, so it was getting some great veterans, which made it even that much more fun. And again, Al recorded us at Capitol, so um, we were able to get a real good sound. And um, just putting these guys together and playing with them uh, was just a joy. So that's what these CDs are really all about. It's it's joyful for me. <laughs> what is that like when you're in the studio there at Capitol? That's got to be something. <laughs> wow. I've had the great pleasure to record there a lot of times. And it's, first of all, it's a privilege. It's a real privilege. There are two recording rooms, A and B, and they can be connected into a big room. And then room C is just a mixing room. But it just is so conducive to, you know, music and feeling good. For having so many hard surfaces and glass and wood and everything, it still feels warm because everything that's happened in there, I guess maybe there are some vibes <laughs> from everything that's happened. It just feels like you want to make music when you go there and, and, and everybody feels the same way. And there's, there are all kinds of neat things about Capitol, like the great guitarist Les Paul designed these echo chambers and they're under the parking lot. You gotta, you gotta go through like a manhole in the, this is not really a manhole, but it feels like it. You know, it's got like rebar uh, stairs that you have to like go down, you know, really far and into these caverns. And then you the the uh, the echo chambers that were designed by Les Paul are there, and they sound so great. They they give that ambient sound that's just a signature of Capitol. 
and they're all connected to the studio and they just turn the knobs up there and boom, the music plays in those echo chambers down there and big speakers and microphones and they make the analog echo and then it comes back up into the studio and they, it's, it, everything just feels good there. <laughs> wow. You know, we were mentioning the, at the beginning, all of these different artists. And when I think about Capitol Studios, I think about, like you, I'm sure, I think about all the people who've come in there. Who would you like to record with that you haven't yet? Oh, my gosh. God, can you? <laughs> can you? Oh, my I, gosh. That is really, you know. Well, Sonny Rollins is retired. Jim Hall and Joe Pass and George Van Nepps and uh, Eddie Lang and Charlie Christian are gone. And uh, I would have loved to have made a record with Rosemary Clooney. I was a tremendous admirer of hers. It's hard to mention people, think of people that are here now because I don't want to I don't want to skip somebody else that, but anybody that is really sincere and wants to do great music, you know, it like, it's really a joy to play for Barry Manilow because he's so knowledgeable about what sounds good in the studio. He's a real pro and an artist. And he's so supportive when you play for him. I did something for him a couple of years ago and started out with just voice and guitar. And they just put us in a room and we played and he was, he was so cool, you know, the guy knows what he wants and he's and he's spot on. And so it's fun to work with people who are just great artists and great professionals. So I, I just like to be in that environment, I would say. What was that song with Manilow? Well, he did this tribute to um New York City. Oh yeah. It was like how I, oh, I love New York or something like that. And he used two styles of bands. He used a pop group, which I didn't have the pleasure of being in. And then he used more of a like a traditional a jazz style group. And uh the song was I don't know the name of the song. It was it was recorded by Mel Torme. And he wanted to kind of recreate it but put his own twist on it. He had told me that the guitar that was on it was Mundell Lowe. Wow, Mundell Lowe. We lost him not long ago, and he was what a great player and what a great guy. And so uh they had written it out, what Mundell played, and I took a look at it, and we did it. And then it went into a, a regular band section, and I think I, my recollection was a couple of years ago, I think I, I played some lines that were written that were with the vibes, so it had, it had kind of a George Shearing quality to it. And then there were another three or four, I think I did on that record, but that was a real joy because they were standards, my favorite, and he was great. And he produced a couple of Bette Midler things that I did, and he was a great producer. Just just terrific in the studio. I wanted to go into a little bit Gordon Lightfoot. What did you do with Mr. Lightfoot? That was a long time ago. Really long time ago. Uh, that was probably it was probably 40 years ago. And it was a TV show. Uh, and it, you know, it made it into my bio and it never left. But, you know, he was a guest star. I, I did a bunch of recording for these uh, Aaron Spelling Company shows years ago when they were around, like um, Dallas and Hotel and uh, 
all those shows. I'm missing out on the on the big ones, but well, Dallas was big and Hotel was big. There were there were a few more too, and so Gordon Lightfoot was a guest star on the show, and then we we recorded a couple of his uh, you know regular hit songs that he would do on the show, and I just I, I at the time I was just kind of building my resume, so I I put that in there, but uh, it's let it stayed. But I like that it's there because, you know, I have a background in like folk music and pop music and rock music. And and I always thought he was a really great artist. So I, I don't want to take it out because I like seeing his name there. But I didn't do that much, really. Just those couple of tunes. And he was really nice to me. Really nice. I mean, it was like, you can play anything you want. I, it's like, but they're your hits. No, it <laughs> sounds good. Just do what you want, you know. <laughs> yeah. Lightfoot stays. <laughs> yeah, life with stays. I mean, I wish I could have a, you know, I wish I could have a Joni Mitchell and Judy Collins and you know, um, and some people on my list, but I don't. But I got Gordon Lightfoot, so I, that's fine, I guess. <laughs> well, Judy Collins, maybe maybe she'll be listening. Who knows? <laughs> oh, I I just love her records, and Joni Mitchell. What a you know versatile you know i mean the early stuff is is uh really folk oriented but she ended up you know playing like mingus stuff you know and and was yeah. and and very, really fine sophisticated players and somehow she got it man she did she's uh she's a terrific artist yeah there's nobody like joni mitchell no <laughs> and i wore out her records i i think if i got them out of the garage the lps that i got when they came out they would just sound like uh, popcorn popping because I just played. I just played the heck. There are certain records I would just play the heck out of. <laughs> are you a Bob Dylan fan? Sure, absolutely. And you know, I'm old enough to have been really part of the peace movement in during the Vietnam years, and that had a lot to do with that kind of music, the protest concerts and marches and events. You know, we were all really, you know, the people that I knew were really uh, against that war. And we were all very troubled every day about that. And uh, and the music was involved because it, it helped push the movement. And, of course, there were guitars. So, you know, that was even better, frankly, <laughs> <laughs> from a personal note. And uh, so you had, you know, Peter, Paul and Mary and and Bob Dylan and other people, you know, and Joan Baez, and all singing for peace. And then civil rights, too. I studied with a great folk artist, but he's more versatile than just that. He plays everything, and he's still alive, and he's in Georgia, Frank Hamilton. Very talented man. He is, by the way, one of the people that you that penned We Shall Overcome. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he uh, he was friends with Woody Guthrie, and he was in the Weavers, and he really inspired me to be a professional musician. I studied with him when I was young, and he encouraged me to go to the Berkeley College in Boston, and uh, and uh, I I love Frank, and I always have a very special place in my heart for him. And he's he's teaching to this day at his own uh, school there in uh, in Georgia. Huh, interesting. What about your own compositions? 
what would you say gets your creative juices flowing? What gets you to start fooling around with some melodies? Well, I've been uh, I've been writing for a long time, and when I when I got out of school and I was in my twenties, I was really into uh, what we back then we called jazz fusion. It's become probably smooth jazz today, an area that I I don't do too much work in anymore. But I was writing a lot of funk, blues, Brazilian style uh, jazz for my group, and we would work around town at the clubs here in Los Angeles, like Dante's and the Baked Potato and Carmelo's and uh, places that most of them are gone. Baked Potato's still here. And I had a such great players, good friends in that group. I had a five-piece group, and, uh, you know, I was and it, it was oriented in that area. I'd say that right now the most of the writing I'm doing is, is arranging for the guitar, arranging more than composing. But sometimes I get an idea, and I go with it. What would you say is the best thing about being Jim Fox, not just limited to music? Well, the best thing about being Jim Fox is being married to Meg Fox, my wife, who is a, a great musician. She is a retired studio violinist, but she is one of the very finest musicians I've ever met. And I uh, am lucky to be married to her, and she's very supportive of me, and I try to be supportive of her. And now she's an artist, and she's producing some beautiful, beautiful uh, work as a, a non-music artist with uh, in her own stuff. So that's that's the best part. And then the second best part about being Jim Fox is that I get to do a lot of fun stuff in music. You know, I one day I'll go and play in a in a little joint with a with a singer uh, or a bass player or something, and then the next day I'm in the studio with a sixty piece orchestra, and uh, maybe I'll get to do a TV show, or I get to. I haven't been flying any place lately, but I've gotten to play in some of the coolest places in the world, places like Royal Albert Hall or uh, Carnegie Hall or the Hollywood Bowl or the Blue Note Club in Tokyo or New York. So doing all this cool music stuff and seeing these beautiful halls and and meeting great musicians everywhere, it's amazing how many great players that are outside of L.A. and New York and Chicago and the places you expect them. You know, there's a mystique about studio musicians or big city musicians the only difference really is where you live and what you've had a chance to do. But you meet some wonderful people out on the road who they could, if they moved to the big cities and had a crack at it, they could do anything. So just the camaraderie of, of being around great musicians and who we all have a, a common goal of creating great music. Okay, so that'd be the second best. <laughs> what would you want people to say about you when you weren't around well i think above music i would say that that i was honest sincere and fair as a person that you could rely on what i would say 
I'd always like to be thought of as a good musician and a loving husband and uh, supportive of other uh, of other people. But I think that particularly in the in the climate in which we live today, being honest, forthright, sincere, and supportive would be a a great trail to leave behind. Do you think that when somebody is an artist, it's more important for them to be humble or it's more important for them to have confidence? Wow, that's a good question. That's a very good question. And there are so many different kinds of artists and so many different ways to go about it. I think that humility can really, a genuine humility can really serve you because because you you look at your own work uh, with humility. I always feel sincerely that the music is bigger than me. So I can never be greater than the music that's produced because the music can always be better than me. And so that's a natural humility. Like I know that if I do something, I could do it better because it's there, it's there to be discovered. It's there to be learned. It's there to be done. So that would be a natural humility. But I think you have to have confidence that, and I think the confidence really is that you, that you can get better, you can do better, you can produce uh, more beautiful music and more satisfying music if you try, and you have it within you. So the confidence would not be uh, arrogance. It would just be genuine confidence that in yourself. So I think a, a combination of humility and confidence is, is very good. But I wouldn't say one is more important than the other. How, how do you, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. You have to have both, that's for sure. I mean, in anything that you pursue in life. But I would say I think humility is more important uh, because you can't really learn without a certain amount of humility in my humble opinion. <laughs> oh, I think that's spot on. Absolutely. I think when you, you know, it's like uh, believing your own press or loving your own stuff. You can't get better from that. Yeah. You know, but we all know people who are like that though, you know, and they get a great satisfaction for what they've achieved. It's genuine, but it's harder to move forward and to get better and to do more work if you're just so in love with what you've done. That's why it's it's beautiful to do it. It's great to listen to it, evaluate it, put it aside, and move on. Hmm. Interesting. I always like to give the guest an opportunity to just address the audience. Basically, give them the stage, whatever they want to say. What would you say to anyone who's listening in? Well... Since I'm here because of music, I, I guess I'd say something about music. And um, try to listen to excellence and enjoy it. Listen, to the, listen just to the very best orchestral, jazz, country, rock, rhythm and blues, world music, anything. Just listen to beauty and try to promote beauty in the world, in the arts. I think that the arts are so important for bringing us all together and for soothing our souls and making our blood pump through our, our, our veins. Art is essential, and I'd like to see more of it 
taught in the schools and enjoyed. I love art for art's sake, without a, without a, an agenda, without a political agenda, really. Even though we we did talk about that, but art for art, music for music's sake, art for art's sake in its pure form. You know, if you listen to uh, in jazz, if you listen to Cannonball Adderley, or you listen to Joe Pass, or Wes Montgomery, or Louis Armstrong, or you listen to Vladimir Horowitz, or anything. You listen to it in its pure form, just for music, and uh, really is great for the soul. I want to call the attention to all the listeners to jimfoxguitar.com. Lots of stuff on there, some music clips to listen to. You can get in contact. You can find out about the albums he's recorded. Check that out. It's jimfoxguitar.com. Mr. Fox, thank you very much for giving of your time. What a pleasure. It's so kind of you. And for uh, Dale Korn to suggest that we get together. Do I have 15 seconds? Oh, absolutely. I just wanted to say that there are some great young players that should be heard that are out there. And maybe some aren't so young, but they might be new to you. Uh, guitarist Graham Dector. Justin Smith is is a real comer here in Los Angeles. He's doing all kinds of great work and stuff. And there's so many players around the country. And to support people who are on their way and finding their way is, uh, I think, really important and a lot of fun. It says a lot about you that you use the pulpit of your interview to promote other artists. We're all in it together. Yeah. It's a brother and sisterhood that we're all in together. No question about that. Well, again, thank you very much. I hope we cross paths again. I hope so, too. Thanks for your generosity and for your time. I really appreciate it. All right. Have a wonderful day. You, too. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. If you enjoy these interviews, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the podcast. You can help us by listening on the free Radio Public app. The show can also be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or Overcast. For more information, visit thepaulleslie.com or follow on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, all at The Paul Leslie. The Paul Leslie Hour theme song is performed and composed by Jeff Pike. Outro music is performed and composed by John Goodwin. See you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.